Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, the North American Contest, Fort Necessity. The colonies responded with their typical, competitive, self-interested fashion. When Pennsylvania's assembly heard of the French's incursions, they voted down a bill that would have funded a fort in modern Pittsburgh. New York was distracted with the politics of figuring out who the next governor was going to be. And they had enough border interests of their own with Canada to their north, they didn't care about some far-off valley out west which they had no claim to. But New York would truly be distracted when Sachem Hendrick of the Mohawks announced, The covenant chain is broken between you and us. There had already been cracks in the relationships over trade terms, and New York's failures in the King George's War to actually, you know, fight Canada. But when a land speculation company attempted to defraud the Mohawks of more than a million acres of land, it would prompt Sachem Hendricks to say in open court, Brother, you are not to expect to hear from me anymore, and, brother, we desire to hear no more from you. Orders would fly in from Whitehall. The governors of New York and New England were to do everything in their power to ensure peace and friendship with the Mohawks. This left Virginia as the only colony attempting to oppose the French's incursions into the Ohio Valley. Lieutenant Governor Robert Dinwiddie petitioned Whitehall for permission to build forts in the Ohio Valley proper. There was, of course, no mention of the fort's location, boosting the speculative land grants that happened to be owned only by the Ohio Company of Virginia, which the lieutenant governor was a shareholder of, or that the Ohio Company had already technically built a fortified trading post at the confluence of Williams Creek, what they did mention was that the Ohio Company had hired Christopher Gist to conduct a land survey as far west as the falls of the Ohio River. He would report, The broad flats covered with white oak forests, fertile river bottoms, wide grassy meadows, surface deposits of coal, and I even found a fossil remain of a mammoth whose four-pound molar I will send back as proof of these discoveries. Gist had also negotiated with the local Iroquois sachems for permission to construct an Ohio Company fortified trading post at Redstone Creek near the confluence of the Allegheny and Monondagala rivers. The Delaware and Suwannee nations living in that area felt threatened by this incursion into their territory. But according to the Treaty of Lancaster, the Iroquois spoke for all other native nations and their interests in the Ohio Valley. Although the fort at Williams Creek served as the portal into the Ohio Valley, Redstone Creek was actually the first permanent English settlement in the Ohio Valley. Meanwhile, the French, who lived in a totalitarian monarchy, where everything functioned only with the permission of the crown, could not conceive of the English's colonial dysfunction. They failed to see that Pennsylvania and Virginia were as much rivals with each other than France. Pennsylvania merchants made their living trading with natives for deerskins, bearskins, and beaver pelts. The Virginia Company was looking to sell speculative land grants which would displace the natives and make native trade more expensive and dangerous for Pennsylvania merchants. Those same Pennsylvania merchants had done their best to set their native allies against Virginia merchants. And Virginia had, of course, returned the favor. And each colony would be lobbying Whitehall continuously for favorable resolutions to their colonial borders and disputes. 
For that matter, Virginia itself was not even a united front. Different land speculation companies had been vying for control of the assembly until Robert Dinwiddie was appointed lieutenant governor of Virginia. He himself, a shareholder of the Ohio Company, had ensured that the Ohio Company would quickly become the dominant land speculation business in Virginia. And by August 1753, Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie finally received word from the English Secretary of State. Virginia officials are in their right to present the River Allegheny within the limits of the province of Virginia. And there, any who trespass, European or native alike, the provinces of America may repel by force. On the other side of this competition over the Ohio Valley, Governor Duquesne had arrived in Quebec, carrying orders from the French crown to make every possible effort to drive the English from the Ohio Valley, to prevent the English merchants from coming to trade in the Ohio Valley, to make our Indians understand we'll have nothing against them and will remain at liberty to go and trade with English in their country, but that we will not allow them to receive English merchants in French land. Accompanying him was 11,000 Canadian militia, who would begin drilling every week, awaiting assignments to protect the Ohio Valley. By the spring of 1753, two forts were under construction by the French. The first stood at the south shore of Lake Erie, and the second was located at French Creek's tributary on the Allegheny River. A third fort was scheduled for construction the next year at the forks of the Ohio River. In August of 1753, colonial governors would receive instruction from Whitehall. Prevent by force French attempts to encroach on the frontiers of any British colony. That encroachment may be made by either the French or their allies. Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie received special instruction for his eyes only. He would receive 30 pieces of artillery to improve Virginia's defenses, which he clearly understood was being sent to repel French aggression in the Ohio Valley. So, the lieutenant governor would appoint an emissary to go enlighten the French that they were building forts in King George's rightful territory. Lieutenant governor appointed 21-year-old Major George Washington. He was an unlikely selection, since he had no experience as a diplomat and had no command of the French language. But Major Washington had three important qualifications, a close connection to the Virginia Company, limited personal responsibilities, which allowed him to undertake the journey, and an eagerness to accept such a mission. Major Washington's first move was to get family friend Jacob von Braum, who spoke French, more or less reliably, and then to hire Christopher Gist to guide them through the valley, along with four other woodsmen. On December 11th, in the middle of a snowstorm, Major Washington would arrive at Fort Leboeuf, where the French captain would receive him with polite hospitality. Then, he read the letter from Lieutenant Dinwiddie in front of all of the English men and the Frenchmen garrisoning the fort. While the French officer was showing up Major Washington, he was taking detailed notes of the fort. The dimensions, palisades, thickness of the walls, number of canoes, and relative location of the barracks to other buildings within the fort. The French captain would eventually give Washington his response. The proper authorities for such a request is the governor of Canada and the governor of Virginia, and they should sort out any decision. But in the meantime, the French intend to defend themselves and have already claimed the Ohio Valley. 
Major Washington would return and report his findings directly to Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie. Dinwiddie then convinced Washington to publish his journals publicly. He hoped this would help public perception arrive to the same conclusion. The French incursion in the Ohio Valley was a threat to all English colonies. Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie commissioned the construction of three forts in the Ohio Valley, and then promoted Washington to lieutenant colonel and assigned him 200 militia to assemble in the spring of 1754 and proceed to the forks of the Ohio River and defend Virginia's interests in the Ohio Valley. The Virginians that were assigned to construct these forts that winter would be met with hostility or indifference from the Delaware nation, who refused to supply them with food, even though Virginia's officer was willing to pay well for those supplies. By April 1754, the fort was nearly complete when they got word of a French expedition of 500 troops on 18 canoes moving in their direction. The French would arrive demanding the surrender of the construction workers. Ensign Ward, who was looking after 40 English construction workers, had little defenses and barely enough food to eat, agreed to the French terms once it became clear that if they surrendered, they would be allowed to leave with their possessions and honor intact back to Virginia. The French would use the captured English supplies along with the supplies they brought to build an imposing new fort, measuring 160 feet between points of its four bastions equipped with a dry moat and log earth walls. The fort itself was large enough to have a central parade ground, guardhouse, officer's quarter, hospital, blacksmith, and bakery, which all supported a garrison of 200 men. When news of the surrender reached Washington in April of 1754, he set out with his men that he had recruited so far, 160 untrained, poorly equipped, inadequately supplied militiamen. With the fort supplies captured, Lieutenant Colonel Washington decided that the expedition would begin construction of a wagon road from Willis Creek to Stone Creek, a slow and arduous process which they accomplished about two to three miles of road per day. The French had daily scouting reports from their native allies on the progress of the Virginia militia. The French captain's problem was that his orders strictly forbid him from attacking without provocation. Eventually, he decided to send Ensign Joseph Jumonville to directly ask the English what their intentions were and to determine if they had entered French lands, in which case they would inform them and demand their immediate withdrawal. France and England at this time were technically at peace. Virginia scouts spotted French tracks. The expedition would march out to confront the French. In the fog of war, each side would have its own story. Washington reported that the French, upon spotting the English, open-fired. The French would say that the English open-fired first. Regardless, Ensign Jumonville would lay dead along with nine of his comrades. Both the English and the French governments would insist their troops were innocent of this aggression. Controversy still swirls today as to what exactly happened on that morning of May 28, 1754, on the Great Meadows in Ohio. But the death of Jumonville was provocation to the French. By June 2nd, Washington had set up a circular palisade of split logs, but there wasn't enough space to shelter the whole expedition. And they had built it in a location that was overlooked by surrounding hills, dangerously vulnerable to any opponent's cannons. In the middle of June, a company from South Carolina of a hundred British regulars would arrive. Captain James McKay, a commissioned royal officer, refused to be commanded by some lieutenant colonel of the colony of Virginia. 
So Lieutenant Colonel Washington would march out with 300 of his own men to scout the trail to Redstone Fort. On the deer trails, the wagons would break down. The horses would die from any misstep. When they reached Redstone Fort, they attempted to convince the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo to join them against the French, but none of them would hear of it. On June 28th, Washington received intelligence of a very large French force approaching. Washington decided to retreat, arriving back at what they now called Fort Necessity on July 1st. The French expedition was well over 1,000 and was captained by Captain Villers, the brother of Ensign Jumonville. The French attack came at about 11 o'clock. Lieutenant Colonel Washington would first order his men to mobilize in the meadow for combat with the French. When cannons started firing from the surrounding hills, Washington would order his men back into the fort where they could take cover in shallow trenches. For eight hours, they would be huddled in the mud, as their now wet muskets were nothing more than clubs. They just hoped that a stray cannonball didn't fall in their ditch. When darkness fell, a hundred Virginia militia had died. The remaining men broke into the rum supply. There was, after all, nothing better to do with the last night of their lives. They fully expected the French to take the fort the next day and for any survivors to be skinned alive by their native allies. In the dark of night, a French voice offered negotiations with any English officer who wished to discuss terms. Lieutenant Colonel Washington sent his friend, Jacob von Braum, because he spoke French, to meet them. The now Captain Braum was offered a chance to retreat with honor. Captain Villers said that he had come to take vengeance on those that had killed his brother, and that he was now satisfied. If the English would sign articles of capitulation in which they would withdraw from the Ohio country, pledge not to return for a year, and to provide two of their officers as hostages, then the French would guarantee their safe passage back to Virginia with their personal possessions and their militia colors intact. If they would not agree to these generous terms, they would be destroyed without mercy. Washington was presented with terms of capitulation to sign. Because they were in French, he could not read them. So when he signed them, he did not understand that he was agreeing to the full responsibility of the assassination of Ensign Jumonville. As far as can be ascertained, no one in the rain-soaked fort questioned why the French were offering such good terms, or even considered the possibility that the French had expended their ammunition and were almost out of provisions. Captain Villers feared the English could be resupplied with arms and men at any moment, and he doubted he had the authority, while England and France were technically at peace, to take prisoners of war anyways. But that is for people with hindsight. On the morning of July 4th, the Virginia militia began its long march back to Williams Creek. As dawn broke, they would see that it had not been the traditional Algonquian nations fighting alongside the French. It had in fact been the Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo nations, helping expel them from the Ohio Valley. By July 6th, the French had burned down all English forts in the Ohio Valley. Shortly thereafter, they would receive the Onondaga Sachems, requesting a new normalization of relations with the French in the Ohio Valley. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.